Our scripture lesson for today is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, page 1,358, 1,358. I'll begin reading chapter 5 at verse 1 and read through verse 18 with particular attention to the last three verses, verses 16, 17, and 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not the night of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, the Thanksgiving holiday has become one of the most popular holidays in North America. But you don't have to be a careful observer of this holiday to know that it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the giving of thanks. It's more about football, family, and food. Now, I have nothing against sports, and I treasure family and food, but for a brief time this morning, I want to focus our attention on the matter of giving thanks together with two other activities that the Apostle impress, uh, impresses upon us, rejoicing and praying without ceasing in the three verses that I want to bring before you this morning. But as I bring those verses before you this morning, I want to also uh, briefly take note of their context that begins in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 5, namely the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing in this chapter is reminding them of how they ought to live as they anticipate the return of Christ. We ought not to live the way the pagans and the non-Christians and unbelievers live, but we ought to live a distinct kind of life because we anticipate the coming of the Lord. And all of what he says boils down to basically this one idea that 
we're anticipating a new world coming. We're anticipating a world where uh, this earth is going to be cleansed and everyone on the earth in the future is going to be at peace with one another and in fellowship with God. And so we need now to begin to live as if we were in that world. Namely, we need to live at peace with one another and we need to live in fellowship with God. And it is that latter part in fellowship with God that is emphasized in the three verses that are before us, beginning with the command to rejoice always. Now, earlier in this letter to the Thessalonians in the first chapter in the sixth verse, Paul noted that the Thessalonians had been joyful already, even in suffering. He writes in chapter 1, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, They received the word in affliction, but that didn't stop them from receiving it in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he says, in so doing, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Uh, We have experienced affliction and joy. The Lord has experienced affliction and joy. And now you are experiencing joy in the midst of your affliction. In other words, the presence of suffering does not make joy impossible. In fact, the suffering for the sake of the gospel is a reason to rejoice. Uh, Jesus reminds us of that in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're blessed when you're persecuted, and you should rejoice because it means your reward will be great. In Romans 8, Paul goes on to say that as we we share in the sufferings of Christ, we are assured that we will also share in his glory. We don't rejoice because we enjoy suffering. Rather, we rejoice because we know that First, suffering can't uh, separate us from uh, the love of God in Christ Jesus. We rejoice uh, because it is temporary. We rejoice because suffering uh, strengthens faith. Uh, We know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance uh, strengthens faith, and our faith will not be disappointed. Uh, We know that uh, in all things we shall overcome, and when we uh, suffer persecution uh, for the sake of the gospel. We rejoice that the Spirit is at work in us. You know, if if you get persecuted for being a Christian, it means your life has been transformed by the grace of God to such an extent that others can see Christ in you. Uh, That's something to be happy about, that that you're changing, you're becoming better, and people can see Christ in you, and when they see Christ in you, they hate you for it. (laughs) Uh, they wouldn't hate you if they couldn't see Christ in you. If, if you look just like them and live just like them, uh, you would not be an affront to them. But they hate the light because the light exposes their evil deeds, and when the light of your life exposes their evil deeds, then as they hated Christ, they will hate you. But 
just think of that. They, they hate you because you have been transformed to such an extent that others can see Christ in you. That's something to rejoice about. The biblical authors do not deny that suffering hurts and that uh, grief hurts, but they assure us that the Spirit uh, working in us enables us to have hope and joy even in the midst of sorrow. Now that joy is founded on the fact that Christ has come into the world and triumphed over sin and death and hell. He suffered the infinite wrath of God against our sins. He endured it all and therefore paid our debt so that we might be forgiven. And then he arose from the dead, triumphing over the grave. And the spirit that raised him from the dead now lives in everyone who believes in him. And that spirit is the down payment of our salvation. It produces righteousness so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. It produces peace so that we are assured that God is not angry with us anymore. And it produces joy as we anticipate the fullness of our salvation when Christ comes again. Some of you may not feel like rejoicing always. Perhaps you are suffering pain from an ailment or uh, from the weakness of age. Perhaps you are lonely. Perhaps you are suffering bereavement. Perhaps you are suffering from broken relationships caused by the sin of others and, and you're feeling some guilt because your own sin has aggravated that broken relationship. You suffer from the stress and pressure of your work from looming deadlines and having to work with difficult people. If you wake up, if you wake up every day with pain or loneliness or dread of going to work, if you face constant friction from those around you, then it's not easy to rejoice. But we need to remember we have a Savior, a Savior who has come into this world to deal with all our grief and all our sorrow, all of which is caused by sin. Every trial, every tribulation you have has its roots in the sin of mankind against God. We live in a world under the curse of God because of sin, but a Savior has come and he has conquered sin, and therefore we have hope in the midst of our grief. What does it mean to rejoice always? Well, it's not a, a command to simply be gleeful and lighthearted or carefree. That's not what it means. John Calvin says, quote, it means a quiet and tranquil spirit, not unduly disturbed by injury or adversity, end quote. In other words, it's to remain calm in trials by remembering the comfort that God gives and the joy that is set before us when Christ comes again. To rejoice always is to look at all hardship in the light of Christ's victory and know that in your heart, we are not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave his life for us. As Jesus kept his eyes uh, fixed on the joy that was set before him, future joy, he was able to endure the cross. And so we too keep our eyes on future joy, future experiencing the fullness of our salvation, and that enables us to persevere in hope. Keep your eye on the goal, Keep your eye on the assured victory. Keep before your mind the joy that awaits you and when Christ comes again, and you will be able to rejoice always.
but that doesn't come easy. And because it doesn't come easy, we have to, we have to pray for strength. And so he says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Paul uh, mentioned three times already in this one epistle the fact that he prays without ceasing. In chapter 1, he said, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly making mention of you in our prayers. And again in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, we all also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. You know, we thank God constantly, he says. And then in chapter 3, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He has been praying constantly for them. The uh, Greek word translated without ceasing, or in some translated, uh, translated uh, constantly, it, it's hyperbole. It's uh, exaggeration for the, uh, uh, to make a point. Uh, it's uh, similar to what Jesus said in Luke 18, where he uh, told a parable that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, or men ought always to pray and not give up, as some translations have it. It means living in conscious dependence upon God and uh, frequently uh, crying out to him for help. Uh, there's a favorite passage of mine in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, Nehemiah did not go back to Jerusalem with the exiles who returned after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. He stayed uh, behind while others went to Jerusalem. And after a while, a report came back to Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to the king. And he was distressed by the report of what was happening in Jerusalem among the exiles who had returned. And it uh, saddened his heart to such an extent that he couldn't hide his grief, even when he was serving the king. And the king noticed his sad face and asked him, why are you sad? And so he told him. And then the king surprised him with a statement that made him rejoice. He said, what is your request? What is your request? Meaning, I'm willing to help you in this situation. You're sad because of what's going on among the exiles who have returned. Uh, what is your request? And the next thing it says, Nehemiah says, I prayed in my heart. Uh, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, and then he tell, told the king what he wanted to do, but he, he prayed in his heart to God, and then he talked to the king. Right in the middle of this conversation, he stops to pray. It must have been a very brief prayer. I don't know exactly what he said. Maybe, thank you, God, for making this king benevolently disposed toward me, and please give me wisdom to know what to say, but he probably said it a lot quicker than that. He prayed in his heart, and he said to the king, that's, that's living in conscious dependence upon God, being constant in prayer, constantly looking to him, what do you want me to do? And give me the strength to do it. Again and again throughout the day, we recognize our need for him. Now, we need to recognize that <clears throat> prayer is common to all religions. In fact, even 
atheists uh, pray. You know the old uh, adage, there is no atheist in foxholes. Uh, that means uh, when the enemy is firing bullets over your head, even if you're an atheist, you cry out to God for help. Uh, but we not, ought to recognize that uh, prayer for other religions is generally an attempt to influence to God, to, to bargain with God, to present yourself to God and ask a favor and then give reasons why you deserve that favor. Uh, it's, it's trying to twist God's arm to get him to do something good for you. Christian prayer is not like that. Christian prayer begins with the confidence that I am already a beloved child of God for the sake of Jesus Christ. Having been clothed in his righteousness, God looks on me as his beloved child and is ready to receive me. I don't have to convince him why I'm worthy uh, to come into his presence. He has made me worthy. Christ has made me worthy. And I come before him uh, gladly and eagerly knowing that he is ready to help me and uh, to do whatever I ask if it's in my best interests. I also recognize that uh, some of the things I might ask for might not be the best thing. And so we pray, yet not my will, but your will be done. Uh, readily acknowledging that God knows best. So we come with joy, with eagerness to his throne of grace in our time of need and pray, uh, our, pour out our hearts to him, knowing that he will all, is already kindly disposed to give us all that we need. Pray that God would uh, make you thankful and uh, enable you to be constant in prayer. And then... Paul goes on to say, not only rejoice always and pray without ceasing, but in everything give thanks. Uh, Paul again sets the example. He begins uh, many of his letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, both the letter to the both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He begins all his letters with, with thanks to God. I thank God for you, he says. Uh, he looks to the people he's writing to and gives thanks to God for them. Giving thanks is an essential element of the, the Christian faith. Many of the Psalms that uh, uh, call God's people to worship, call God's people to give thanks to him. We find Jesus uh, before he fed the multitude, giving thanks for the uh, loaves and the fishes that he was about to distribute. And when he was about to uh, distribute the Lord's Supper in the upper room the night before uh, he was crucified, it says he gave thanks. Paul in Romans 1 says that the failure to give thanks is one of the chief sins of mankind for which the wrath of God is already being revealed. Romans 1.21 says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Failure to give thanks is the sign of foolishness and dark hearts. A number of months ago, Reverend Lubbers stood up here and I was sitting down there and he said to the congregation and to me, are you a thankful person? And at the time I was, uh, uh, in that time or week or so, I was thinking a lot about the 
the infirmities of age with which I am inflicted. Not that I have any uh, life-threatening disease, but uh, when you get older, things begin to fall apart and don't work the way you want them to. And uh, I was uh, having a little pity party, and it struck me when he said, are you a thankful person that I hadn't been as thankful as uh, I should be? And so I, I, I asked the question to you now again, are you a thankful person? Are you one who gives thanks, gives thanks in everything, remembering that the failure to give thanks is the sign of foolishness and of a dark heart? Again, giving thanks, like prayer, is not unique to the Christian faith. Secular people and pagan religions, they also give thanks, but the giving of thanks for them is, again, different. It's, it's more an attempt at, at flattery. Uh, thanking the gods is trying to uh, butter them up uh, with the hope that in acknowledging their favors, more favors would be received. Last night, I read an article from the Oskaloosa Herald on the second page about Thanksgiving. It was a very secular approach, uh, an evolutionary approach, asking how uh, mankind evolved to be a creature who gives thanks. And uh, the article basically said it's out of self-interest that we give thanks. Uh, we uh, butter up other people by thanking them, find something to thank them for so that they will be predisposed in the future to do nice things for you. If you uh, uh, scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. It's all about being uh, uh, in a relationship of reciprocal uh, good deeds. You do a good deed for me, and uh, I'll do a good deed for you, and I'll remind you about it by thanking you for the good deed you did for me so that you're more disposed to, to do it. And uh, that's how Thanksgiving supposedly evolved in human creatures as we realized it was uh, a thing that was in our self-interest to do. But we give thanks to God, recognizing that we can't offer him anything and our flattery uh, doesn't earn any favors with him. Christ has already earned every good gift that we deserve, that uh, we need from God. And uh, we not only thank God for the favors that he has done for us, we thank him for everything. We thank him for everything because we recognize that everything works together for good, even the painful experiences of life, uh, even uh, the harsh things that he brings into our lives because we know that he, he disciplines those whom he loves. And though discipline is uh, painful rather than pleasant, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the Apostle James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness having, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we are thankful not just for good things, we're thankful for everything. Being thankful is good, but giving thanks is God's will for us. Many uh, families have a tradition at Thanksgiving to uh, go around the table and uh, say what you're thankful for. Well, that's a good thing to do, 
But don't stop there. After you say what you're thankful for, then give thanks to the giver of every good and perfect gift. Give thanks to God. Now, Paul underscores all this by saying at the end of verse 18, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will for you. Living in harmony with one another, we haven't looked at that, but especially it's God's will for you to rejoice and to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in everything. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying there when he says, this is the will of God. He's not saying, this is God's command, and I'm laying down the law, and this is what you have to do. You better do it or else you're in trouble. Now, that's not what he's saying here. Yes, it's, it's uh, something that uh, we recognize God wants us to do and that we ought to do and that it is uh, his moral will for us to do this. But when, but when he says, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, he's saying, this is my plan. This is, this is what I have in store for you. This is what life is going to be like in the new world that is coming. In the new world that's coming, your life is going to be filled with joy every day and you're going to be rejoicing all the time. And in the new world that's coming, you're going to be living in fellowship with me. You're going to be talking to me and I'm going to be talking back to you. Right now, he talks back to us through the Bible, but we talk to him through prayer. But in the life to come, there'll be even more direct communication with God. There'll be constant communication going on, constant fellowship, constant communion with him. And because of it, our hearts will overflow with gratitude for everything. This is what God has in store for you. This is, this is what your salvation is moving toward and will become. And so this is his will for you now. This is what he wants you to enjoy now. You know, at the beginning of the Bible, there's the, what we call the creation mandate. And a mandate is a command. But the context of the, of the creation mandate is the words, and he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And it's not he blessed them, and then after he blessed them, he gave them work to do. No, he blessed them, and the way he blessed them was saying, be fruitful and multiply. That's a blessing. And subduing the earth, that's a blessing. And now also, this is his will for you, and this will is a great blessing upon you. This is his will for you who are in Christ Jesus, that you live at peace with one another and that you live in close communion and fellowship with him and that close communion and fellowship with him is expressed in rejoicing, in praying, and in giving thanks about everything. Thanksgiving is an American holiday and for that I'm thankful. I'm thankful that our president signs a, a Thanksgiving Day proclamation and calls us together to give thanks, calls the nation together to give thanks. But giving thanks is not a one-day-a-year affair. It is a way of life, and for the Christian, a joyous way of life that gives expression to the life of communion and fellowship that we look forward to in the life to come. Thanks be to God. Amen. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this expression of your good and gracious will for us in Christ Jesus. 
and pray that we may begin in this life to experience what will be our uh, full-time occupation in the life to come, rejoicing always, communing with you, and being thankful for it all. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.